the human performance field hasn't really been updated in 30 or 40 years. And most of the gurus in that field are at the late end of retirement, we'll say. <laughs> and what we want to do at RADCOM is revitalize. We want to humanize it and modernize the human performance field. And that gets me excited. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with Angie Dianetti, the president and driving force behind Radcom, a company specializing in performance improvement consulting, which Angie founded back in 1996. And under Angie's guidance, Radcom has earned the distinction of a Weatherhead 100 Outstanding Growth Company seven times over since then as one of Northeast Ohio's fastest growing companies that Angie has successfully navigated through various challenges over the years, spanning the dot-com bubble burst, offshoring, reshoring, the Great Recession, the pandemic, and more. Angie is fervent about assisting business leaders in fostering a performance culture where engaged employees adhere to high standards and hold themselves accountable. And with a unique combination of training expertise and technical documentation know-how, for more than 20 years, Angie and her team at Radcom have helped clients do just this and solve their most pressing problems by empowering their teams to carry out their jobs more efficiently, drive positive results, and infuse continuous innovation into their daily lives. Today, we are also joined by guest co-host Dan Eisenberg, a familiar name from Lay of the Land's 112th conversation with Daniel Hampu, the president of the Burden D. Morgan Foundation. Dan, a professor at Columbia Business School and a former Harvard Business School professor, is the founder of Scalarator Northeast Ohio. Dan and Angie's paths intersected in 2021 when Angie enrolled in the Scalarator Northeast Ohio program designed to support organizations with sales between 5 million and 15 million in navigating growth and scaling challenges. Angie's passion for her business is inspiring, and it was a pleasure to delve deeper into Radcom's evolution, driven by Angie's adaptability and resilience. I hope you all enjoy our conversation with Angie Dianetti right after a brief word from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. So Angie, I'd, I'd love to begin our conversation by 
really just hearing about what motivated you to start a company around this problem of, of technical writing and, and documentation in the first place. You, you have such a, an eclectic background from petroleum engineering to banking. You know, what, what transpired looking back on those early days leading up to the creation of Radcom that inspired th- this jump? You know, there's a couple things. One, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. So being in business is just a natural thing and something I, my husband and I had just kind of always assumed would be part of our future. My, my dad started his first company as a young, probably older teenager, started in landscaping. And by the time I was born, he had trucks and employees and all kinds of stuff. And then he shifted completely out of that industry into the oil and gas industry, which is where the petroleum engineering degree came from. (laughs) (laughs) But really starting Radcom was really a very classic e-myth type story of a technician wanting to get out from underneath others. We can do it better. So not a whole lot of thought at that point went into solving a business problem. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe help us set the stage here uh, so that we can all follow along as to you know what technical documentation and and technical writing actually is. You know what what is the 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 nature of this problem? How how has it evolved over time? And what were the the ways in which you envisioned that you could do it better? Sure. So technical communication is very much just communicating complex technical ideas. So early on, you know, we're in the late 90s, there was a lot of that kind of work. And we did it, you know, as because we could do it cheaper. We almost were like independent contractors, uh, having come from working for other companies where the documentation was very much an add on. You know, so if you're writing software, you need a help file. If you are developing product, you need user documentation, those kinds of things. But the problem is there wasn't a whole lot of respect for the technical writer. And what always happened on those kinds of projects is the product launch date never changed, but as development got overruns and overruns and overruns, and then your time to produce the documentation got shorter and shorter and shorter. And we were hoping, I think, to be able to provide a little more respect for the tech writer and look for opportunities to sell it where it wasn't just an add-on to something else. Mm. So we did a lot of standard operating procedures, did a lot of ISO documentation in the early days. So, but yeah, that was early Radcom. Every time there has been, as you know, since 1996 when we started and today, the economy has been a roller coaster. And my philosophy has always been, let's look at our skills and what we have. Let's look at what the market needs today and figure out how we can leverage what we already do to solve today's needs. Mm. So we, yeah, we very much started off in .com, help files, things like that. We worked in... Uh, manufacturing, medical device, and then things got offshored. And then we moved to financial services. We started adding, uh, so we changed industries. We changed our service offering to add in 
instructional design. So we were doing training and then uh, train the trainers. Then we added e-learn or well, web-based training first before e-learning was <laughs> named e-learning. And then like over COVID, we did a lot of what uh, is called VILT, uh, which is virtual instructor-led training. You know, because that was a big need. All of a sudden, you can't bring people into a training room. You know, we got busy doing that also after 9-11 because travel is done. You can't bring people into training. So let's, how do you take exercises designed for a classroom and do them online? Like, so now what we're looking at is the tech comm industry has gotten very commoditized. Mm. And, you know, when you've got things like Fiverr out there, you can go get a tech writer or instructional designer independent for a lot of your needs. We've got uh, a lot of offshoring. So you want an e-learning developed. Well, it's a lot cheaper to develop it with programmers in India. You've got artificial intelligence and chat HPT that will soon be able to do a large chunk of the heavy lifting of tech to come. And so, again, once again, I've looked at what are the skills that we have and what can we do to get out of this commodity land? And so we are now focusing very heavily on human performance improvement because two of the biggest solutions to human performance problems in the workplace are documentation, standard operating procedures, and training because employers want to fix their people. But only 11% of performance problems can actually be solved by training. Mm. So we're going in that direction. We're developing intellectual property. It's really fun stuff. And I will say, I'll give the Scalarator a plug now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was the beginning of my transformation. And part of it was from Daniel's book, too, Worthless, Impossible, Stupid, I think it was called. I, because I'm a nerd, I had to read the books of all the professors before I started Scalarator. So, you know, just because that's just what I do. But I finally feel like an entrepreneur as opposed to a business owner. And that was a big aha for me. I have for 26 years, or 25, because I think I, you know, I started a few years ago now, making the transition from business owner to entrepreneur, where I'm actually looking to finally create something that doesn't exist, not just collect a paycheck as my own boss. That's a, it's a, a fascinating distinction there, one that I actually don't think I've heard as explicitly as that. You introduced a, a lot of uh, threads there that I, <laughs> I want to pull on, and, and hopefully we can circle back to all of them from you know, your, your culture of adaptability and, and resilience over time as the technology world just evolves. I, I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned early on, though, which was about just respect for documentation. <laughs> and that, that actually resonated a lot because I've come to believe that you know, mature companies who really have their stuff together need to have enough of this foundational process, infrastructure, documentation in place so that all hell does not break loose <laughs> if, if those who are leading the organization need to you know, take a little time off, for example. And, and one of the, the, the real challenges I experienced building my own company was around this idea exactly after we had closed on our first capital and 
and uh, were able to grow the team from 10 to 40 people. I constantly was thinking about this problem that 80% of the company has only been at the company for less than six months. And so you have this vast majority of people who you're trying to get onboarded and empowered to do their best work. And they, they in an ideal world, need to have unrestricted access to the institutional knowledge that is just dormant in, in the minds of, of the people who have, who have just happened to have been there longer and understand the history and why decisions were made the way they were and how it all works. And so often it, it really came down to documentation as this point of empowerment. And so when, I, when you talk about respect, like I've learned the hard way, I think, and I have this deep respect now for, for those who have good practice around this, I think from the hard way. How do you get entrepreneurs, companies to overcome that reservation of prioritizing documentation? over the competing priorities. First of all, documentation is, and you say it that way, we're going to prioritize documentation. It's going to bore, the, bore everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, I mean, except for maybe a few of us, you know, technical writers, engineers who really get into it. But the reality is you actually hit on it more with your, it's the re, revolving doors that are that companies have right now. That's not going to get better. Because when you look at those average numbers, you are actually looking at people like me have been doing the same thing for 30 years, are in those averages. The each if you look at it generationally, each generation is their their longevity in a job is shorter and shorter and shorter. And companies who want to have staying power, who want to, I mean, the tremendous amount of cost in wasted labor and you know, waste, wasting wasted human resources it, that that's why you have you do this this it's not you have to flip it off of the expense side of things and make it a strategic move that a company is making so if you you know when we start in on a project we start with a a company that's got a performance problem they I, we got a call from a company that that our people uh, please come update our standard operating procedures because uh, our people aren't following them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is not your problem is not updating the procedures. I'm happy to update them, but the problem is let's look at what's going on in your environment. Performance problems, eighty percent of performance problems are incentives, environment. It's feedback loops, all of those things. So we've gotten to the point now where, yeah, we'll do your operating procedures. We'll document this stuff for you. But let's back it up first. And let's say, what does your employee need to produce? Not what do they need to do, not behaviors, not none of that. What is, you look at the business results and then you look at a position and what are the outcomes that that position is. So if I'm an employer, I am paying you to produce this result for me. And let's get rid of the mutual mystification of, uh, of what it is you are expected. Very few employees actually come to work wanting to do a bad job. So if we tell them, Here's the expectations. And then you, we, we are also then developing tools for the managers to manage to that output sheet. So 
Uh, matter of fact, my uh, one of my employees is speaking, I think maybe even today at the ISPI conference. ISPI is the International Society for Performance Improvement. And her topic is goodbye job descriptions, hello performance profiles. So a job description, first of all, it's typically describes a person, not the actual job. So let's dig into the job. What are the outputs? And then once you have the outputs, you back up what are the behaviors. And then you back up a step further and define what the behavior influences are to put a holistic package of how to succeed. This is great. I love the framing of human performance improvement. Uh, and it sounds like that's huge. Can you give us a, an idea of the market? Who are your customers? How, how do they find out about you? And then how, how big is the opportunity? So that is the part that we are still working on. So traditionally, I have sold to the billion dollar and up companies. And that's where it's become commoditized. So I'm, we are putting this. Can you drop any names for us? Trying to think which ones I are contractually allowed to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> utility in Northeast Ohio, um, a international construction company. So, <laughs> so right now we are actually targeting a much smaller market, and because we we're, we've put this together in a way that we can develop value very inexpensively. So we are now targeting twenty five million to two hundred fifty million mostly currently in manufacturing, but the reality is anybody who has employees can do this and we can get started relatively inexpensively and the ROI, in theory, is great. We've only done so far about 10 of these projects, but uh, it, it, it is growing and we're working on getting those metrics so that we'll be able to show the actual dollars and cents ROI. But the one client we did work for, it was a Northeast Ohio company, and we just did a, a performance analysis that showed that this was the company that wanted us to update their standard operating procedures. We still haven't done their standard operating procedures because our report showed them about 15 other things that would cost less than $5,000 to fix all of them. And we're going to have an amazing impact on the rework they were having to do, the, the, all those kinds of things. We don't have enough longevity on it. Part of our, our process is to start capturing these metrics now with, that we are doing documentation training with a performance improvement mindset and filter. It, it sound, when you said it's a smaller market, I assume what you meant is that it's a market that's made of smaller customers. That is what I meant. Yes, <laughs> it is actually a much, much larger market. <laughs> yeah, well, the market must be huge. It sounds like a multi-billion dollar opportunity. I, I would love to have that dream come to fruition while I'm still young enough to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, as you have made this transition in your you know, perception of yourself as a business owner to an entrepreneur as, as Radcom as a company has evolved in its offerings and, and, and kind of, you know, worked on its adaptability uh, through, through different offerings over time, knowing that it's, it's constantly evolving, the, the offering, the market, the, how do you describe Radcom today just as a, as an organization and, 
we can you know work our way backwards to to understand how it's evolved. We are a performance improvement consulting company. We help business leaders get the most out of their employees so that you as a business leader can get back to doing what you do best and you're not solving people problems all the time. Sounds simple. It does. But the, the nature of those problems, as you've suggested, changes over time. Right. And, and part of it, where it's been a challenge for us with this new way of thinking has been people, the, the companies that we've helped so far in this world have come to us from different aspects. You know, one has a production problem. Uh, several of the projects that we've done are really more what we are terming career pathing problems. So you had a municipality that needed to differentiate. All of their workers were called service technicians. I don't know if that's actually it, but we'll just use that. But the reality, but they had multiple pay levels. So you had actually in that you had service technicians one, two, and three, which is what they have now, which each had different things, different outputs that were expected of them. So now their staff, they, they, they take those job performance profiles and you know, I'm a, I'm a service tech one. Here's what I need to do to be a service tech two. Here's what I need to do, be a service tech three. And you can then provide coaching and training on how to get all those competencies so it's instead of starting with training as a solution, we're starting with what do you need to be able to do? And then also fixing then what training we would give those people instead of it being, what do they need to know? It's what do they need to do? Because most corporate training today is very tight on what do people need to know? And can you repeat back to me what I just told you five minutes ago? And, you know, that's, it, it, it's a waste of time and resources. And instead, let's develop training where people can actually practice the skills that they need to be able to do. So I want to, you know, piggyback on what Jeff was asking about. Um, you've, you've gone through some really significant transitions. I don't know if it feels that way to you, but it <laughs> sounds that way to us. And one is from an owner to an entrepreneur. Uh, another one is from a few big customers to lots, uh, lots of smaller, medium-sized customers, and from document a documentation company, which sounds, as you say, sounds boring <laughs> if I can say it, even though it may not be, but to a human performance improvement company, which sounds really exciting. You also went through a six-month program, the Scalerator, which we've done quite a few times here in Northeast Ohio with over seventy companies and half a billion of revenues. In what way did the Scalerator help you facilitate that transition? What were, what were some of the, the, the takeaways from that? So I think, you know, we did a real deep dive on, on our clients, what they wanted, what they needed uh, was part of it. The biggest things I personally got out of Scalerator is I tended to ignore kind of the free money on the table of like the, so because of Scalarator, I decided to go ahead and get the ERTC funding, and I did the PPP loans earlier. But I what I like I don't need that. I'm you know, our, our, everything looks good, and because of 
the encouragement of the group, I went ahead and did it. And so we are in a really solid cash position that we would not have been in if I had not followed that advice of, of looking for cash in places. I also gave me the courage when business started to slow down post-COVID for us, because people start bringing their people back in the office and, and, and economy, we always tend to follow a little bit behind other people's dips. So, you know, we're good when, when it, for the economy first starts going, but then when it starts going back up is when we start to struggle a little bit. But because of Scalarator, I really focused on capacity and building. You know, in the past, when things would start to shrink, it we would, you know, let's just lay everybody off and get real small. And instead, I said, you know what? We've got great people. We've got this idea that I think is a, as you, you called it a billion dollar idea, Daniel, so, you know, that I felt was a billion dollar ideal and, and something that was going to, I mean, I'm 61 years old. I was like, I don't want, I told everybody I got one more recession in me and then I'm out. <laughs> you know? But, you know, now I have something that's actually worth building for something that's going to have my company have value beyond my retirement date. And I think that came from not even necessarily the learning and scalarator, although that, that is good. I think it came though. It's those peer to peer relationships. You know, I still get together with Kirk Lintern all the time, you know, and as I've been developing this service offering, He's been my gut check for it throughout. So that is the real value of Scalarator to me. Hmm. When you think about Radcom projecting in, into the future, as you've done there, you know what, what ultimately is the, the impact that you're hoping to have with this organization? What, what does success look like? Uh, success, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like I've already had success because I've built a really awesome organization of people who hold themselves accountable. We run the business on EOS, which is uh, traction. And I moved this year strictly into the visionary seat. So I, I have people who just do their jobs. We've, we've built a lot of this performance system into our own organization. So it, it, it is, I, I've built what I set out to build to originally. Now, with the performance stuff, I mean, I love the fact that this can actually help every business scale. You can't scale unless you have these things. What stops most businesses from scaling is the business owner who's doing everything. And so, you know, but if you can get them to sit down with you and say, how do you do this? Why do you do this? What we call an exemplary performer is you, know, you look at the person who's doing it well and let's let let's figure out how to replicate that and you move the whole performance curve up and whether it's the business owner that's the high performer and you need them to be able to let go and go do business owner things so the rest of us can actually so we can scale this thing because you can't scale on yourself or if it's a manager that needs to uh, you know, you're growing and, and you no longer can do everything you did before, but you need 
other people to pick up what you used to be able to do. We can go in and help build that so that you don't have to worry about it being done right or well. So that, and if every company in Northeast Ohio or, or the world <laughs> would do that, employers are happy, you're building well. It's just an amazing thing. The human performance field is hasn't really been updated in 30 or 40 years. And most of the gurus in that field are at the late end of retirement, we'll say. <laughs> and what we want to do at RADCOM is revitalize. We want to humanize it and modernize the human performance field. And that gets me excited. Sounds exciting. Yeah, it, it is very exciting. <laughs> Again, a few questions as a follow-up here, but my sense is that relinquishing those responsibilities as a business owner, delegating, it, it truly might be one of the hardest things that happens, as you mentioned, as, as the bottleneck to scale. How do people typically navigate that uh, transition of, of being able to, to let go of, of what maybe they are not, you know, they, they're used very much to being in full control? Of, of that situation. Part of it is not trusting that anybody else can do it right, that they nobody else can do it as well as, as you can. Nobody else cares as much. And the reality is it's partially because as managers, entrepreneurs, we think we're really clear on our expectations. And we think that everybody sees our vision, but we're really bad at actually communicating and helping people to see the vision. So, you know, these kind of tools help get rid of that, what I call the mutual mystification of what success looks like in a job. But it goes both ways because it's, you know, the one key thing I would ask an entrepreneur is what, and in EOS we call it letting go of the vine, what do you need to be able to let go of the vine? Because that's what an entrepreneur needs. They need to be able to to trust and know that it's that it's handled before they can say, I don't need to handle it. And one of the biggest things we tend to do when something goes wrong is instead of fixing what went wrong, fix the process, provide more resources, whatever, what do we do as entrepreneurs? We jump in and try to save the day and fix it. And if you cannot scale a business, if that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> I, it hurts. I've, I've experienced <laughs> this pain and problem. I've made that mistake. I don't, I don't know if this is true for you as well, uh, Jeff. For me, it's also the flip side, which is I'm afraid that people will be doing it at least as well as I do it and maybe even better. And so who needs me? And, and my experience is if you hire well, and you provide these things, Daniel, that is exactly what will happen. And it's a it's a beautiful thing when you let go of something and you let somebody else take it on who has now time to 100% focus on just that piece instead of the ADHD-ness of most entrepreneurs. Now, all of a sudden, somebody who is good at it and has time to focus on it they, they can, they will do a better job. But what I've also found is I also then do a better job on the stuff I've kept 
because I'm not bothered by having to worry about those things. How often are people that you're working with coming to you from a proactive place versus one where they know they are having a problem and they need your, your help in retrospect? You know, usually it's that it's when something bad happens is when they finally decide that this needs my attention and focus to solve it. And it will be, you know, right now it's sometimes the guy who's been here for 40 years is retiring and nobody knows what, what Joe knows, you know, and, and they're panicked or, you know, they, there will be customer complaints. And so they start looking into seeing what's, uh, you know, why is their product quality control bad? We got to fix this because we're losing orders. We're having to pay for rework. We are, uh, a lot of material waste, you know, which is why manufacturing is where we are kind of focusing a lot of our work because it's easier to see the and measure the, 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 the cost of not having this. But in any industry, it's time to proficiency for, all, for the employees when you have high turnover. It's all, all the good people are leaving. And there is because they aren't seeing a career path for themselves. They don't see a future for them at our company. Those are the kinds of problems that clients have come to us for. But usually it is not proactive, no. Yeah. That, I, I didn't imagine it, it, it would be. But <laughs> if it were, I would definitely have a waiting list. <laughs> As you also have gone to market, you mentioned earlier, you know, an avoidance of the, the commodity part of the business. As you've transitioned to, to the work you're doing now, what does competition look like in this space? And, and how do you think about differentiation? You know, there really isn't much, certainly not locally. There's, there, there is not much. There are a few other companies that are in the, the performance arena, but there's so much work that I, I, I don't, really haven't figured out if there's even a need to uh, come up with a specific differentiator for for it. I think the plan is to, if it does become a grow, because if it's really popular, this could, you know, everybody else and their brother might start doing it. it. It's developing the intellectual property, our own process. You know, I haven't gotten it trademarks and patent stuff yet because I haven't developed it solidly enough to go there, but that is the plan. It's interesting because it's not often there's just not, not competition. Why, 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 why do you think that that is? I think, let's, you know, we've always what, in Radcom had very little competition in what we actually do. We have competition in little areas. Like, so when we you know, e- developed e-learning, there's a bazillion e-learning companies out there. So there's competition in that little piece. But we also do instructor-led training. And so there's competition in that little piece. We do standard operating procedures, tech writing. So there's that little piece. We What differentiated in that, us in that world is we did a holistic approach to your documentation and training, not just you know, whiz-bang, really cool e-learning with lots of bells and whistles that doesn't actually train anybody in anything, but it looks cool. That that is how we've differentiated 
it in the past. So the performance, there, there, like you said, there are a few companies, there are companies that call themselves performance-based. Many of them are learning companies. But looking at it as learning isn't the only solution. And it, as I said, it only solves the problem 11% of the time. So we're trying to build out all of the other things. Let's get the coaching and the feedback systems and all of these other pieces. Let's make sure you're, you're incenting people properly because often incentive programs are so convoluted that people don't, if people can't use your incentive program to actually adjust their behaviors and actions, then it's useless. When you talk about human performance improvement, it sounds something very tangible. If I'm a company, I come to you because you're actually going to improve the performance of my people. That's like, wow, right? Do you actually measure the impact of what you do on, on their performance? We are working on that. The problem is, is that most of the clients don't have measures. But so the first thing we ask, in, and this even goes because they usually come to us with a, they want us to train or they want us to write standard operating procedures. And that's probably because from 26 years of marketing that way. But, the, you know, that's what we're known for. But it's also the mindset is for many is I got to fix my people. So they'll come to us with that kind of a, of, of a mindset. So you know the, what we are looking at is, do they do it right sometimes? If they're doing something right sometimes, it's not a knowledge problem. If they're not doing it right, why aren't they doing it? And we look at the holistic picture. So what we will ask them is, if right now your performance is X, and you want to get it to Y, but most of them don't know the X yet. So what we're starting to do is to help build that in as, all right, let's start with what is the X today? What is, and what do you need it to be? And let's look at how do we move from X to Y? You know, will you be Stephen Covey, X to Y by when? Right. No, I mean, it makes sense. You, you can't really measure improvement if you can't measure at all. Often there's this vague idea that they're just, that I'm not getting what I need to be getting, but it's, it, it's getting them to sit down and say, okay, are you measuring what you need to be getting? And this, the smaller the companies, the harder that conversation is because the big companies are used to measuring. So it's been, that's been a challenge. As you reflect on the, the whole journey so far of building you know, Radcom, you, you know, you'd mentioned somewhat a, of the vision at the onset was, you know, we, we can do this better, cheaper. How has your, your thinking on it evolved? What is, what has surprised you about the, the evolution of, of Radcom over time that, that you didn't anticipate when you started? Well, you know, when I started, I never really thought that I would be not actually doing writing anymore. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that, that was part of it. I think the complexity of, being in business was something I, that, that I never really thought about as, as getting started and all of the things that that means and how hard it is to know all of that stuff, how lonely sometimes being the, the owner can be, the boss. 
But as far as the growing of the business, I think it's the resiliency of the being flexible. We would not be in business today if we weren't able to be flexible and always be looking for what does a customer need today? Because it's not ever going to be what they needed yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be remiss. Also, I, I think if I if I didn't ask, you know, having worked with with so many companies ac- across so many different industries on this this core problem of 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 training and documentation and, and improvement, just just overall, do you find that there's just generally low hanging fruit that you know? If folks listening in can apply to their own business, that that is likely maybe something they're not thinking about that that they could. Oh, I think probably the most important thing is start with your business results and one take your your the position that you feel is the le- least productive that's not getting you the results that you think it needs and get down and dirty clear about what that function is it needs to be providing to your organization and then step back and figure out well how 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 do we get that so if it's a sales team and you need you know the your sales team to be bringing in x number of new deals per quarter at, 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 at a certain volume and they're not do and that's not happening you got to you know dig in and look at what are that that's the deliverable. Now let's look at what are the sub outcomes for each of those things and just dig in and make sure you have a process because we too often just kind of hope it happens. Hmm. So it's, it's understanding a success criteria. Yep. You know, what, what does it look like to be it, successful in any given role? Any and given all role. those roles need to roll up to the business needs. You know, often you'll have, a, so it's just a story you got a factory and yet you know diff- different production lines okay and you know the lo- line 1 produces something that has to go to line 2 and line 2 pr- is producing for the, the a product for the customer so line 1 is hitting all their numbers and you're stockpiling all those parts for at the end of line 1 but line two has a different priority and is waiting for a another part from another department and can't use all of those things that line one. So line one is highly productive organization. Line two is not producing, but it has not. You know, so you, you, you've built up all this waste of these products that line one is producing with nowhere for them to go sitting in your inventory when your real problem is fixing line two's supply problem so that they can start moving again. And they're not even, it's not a performance issue. It's not, well, why are they producing a thousand units an hour and you're not producing, you know, 10? <laughs> well, again, it's a system. Business is a system. We have to look at it as a holistic system. So before we we kind of bookend the the conversation here, I, I want to leave some space for for you to you know touch on anything that you think is important uh, as part of your journey, as part of building Radcom that that we haven't necessarily talked about yet. Oh, I you know one of the things I think that's been really important for us is is building the culture, 
We we have a, a, a really amazing culture program. Everybody is very, very involved in it. It really has helped be able to let go because I know I've got all the right people. They live our values, but we, we don't just live our values. We, we make it part of just, we celebrate our values. I think that's the key. We, we, we celebrate people's successes. We recognize people based on their values. And that, that has been huge. I like the framing of culture as, you know, how the, the, the people in the organization might make decisions. That's if the you're whole not point. The room, right? <laughs> it's the whole point of culture. <laughs> you know, culture gets a, a, a froofy. It is probably the most important thing as a business owner that you can do is make sure that you have the culture because you have a culture, whether you know, if, if you've named it or not, you know, be intentional about it. And, and it's, it, it has been a game changer. Elaine Eisenman, one of the faculty, uh, you probably remember, Angie, defines culture in part as what people do when no one's watching. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Angie, I'll ask you our uh, traditional closing question, which has very little to do with anything that we've talked about so far, <laughs> but is a fun one, which is for not necessarily your favorite thing in, in Northeast Ohio and, and Cleveland, but for a hidden gem, something that other folks may not know about. Uh, you know, there's, there's so many, the microbrewery culture. I mean, Northeast Ohio has, I think 60 microbreweries, maybe more. I mean, Cincinnati has this beat, but not by much. <laughs> and we're, Ohio is number five in the, in the country for, for microbreweries. So, so I like, I, I like to visit all of the local ones as much as I can. <laughs> Yeah, no, they're they are they are great. Um, <laughs> I, I share that sentiment. They're they're just they're all over the place. They are all over the place, and yeah, you know, more entrepreneurship in Cleveland, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, Angie, I just I want to thank you again for taking the time to come on and and share your story. It, it is a fascinating one, and uh, I, I really enjoyed getting to to listen in. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. If if people had anything that they wanted to follow up with you about about your own journey, about Scalarator, about Radcom or, or otherwise, what would be the, the best way for them to do so? Well, uh, you can, LinkedIn is always good, AD and Eddie. Uh, my email address is AD and Eddie at radcomservices.com. And as you can probably tell, I love talking to people. So, <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you, Angie, again. Dan, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Angie. Thank you, Jeff. Mm, thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. 
At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week.